Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that could transform hearts. Now, imagine when you opened up that book, it was full of highlights and notes in the margin. And so you could see how this book has transformed someone's heart. This is The Notable Podcast. These are discussions where pastors not only take seriously the biblical text, but they share what they've been underlining and highlighting, all of their notes that help them share the world's most important book and how it's transformed their hearts and how it can transform the lives of the people you know. This is Season 4, Darkness Passing, a reading of the letter of 1 John. You're about to hear a conversation between Kent Reader, a pastor at Illumin Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina, just south of Charlotte, and Luke Thompson, a pastor at St. Paul, a congregation serving downtown Ottawa, the University of Ottawa, and Carleton University in Ontario, Canada. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us or hear more, visit NotablePodcast.com. That's N-O-T-A-B-L-E Podcast.com. This is the fourth season's second episode, 20-something. Okay, so I think today let's dive into this idea of who the author is, uh, John. Um, at least uh, we'll talk about whether or not John should be the author. But uh, you raised uh, a couple good thoughts, I think, um, as we were kind of hashing out a little bit of this earlier. Um, how do you kind of want to approach this topic yeah. with John or with um, the author? With the author particularly, like, it's good. Like, we all, when you get into seminary, you learn about reading the Bible or understanding uh, stuff that is written in the Bible, understanding who the author is is really a valuable thing. Um, but there is uh, sometimes a, a temptation or a danger in getting to know personalities too much. I think of it a lot in like the American political spectrum where um, most of the time it seems when uh, political opponents want to um, hurt their opponent, instead of focusing on issues or having uh, arguments about uh, stances, they'll just bring up things about the personality of the other person to make everybody hate that person. Because when you know some things about a person, it's going to color the way that you hear the content they're trying to deliver to you. Um, and, and that's a big deal. And like, it's not just in the political scheme of things. Like I've had that happen to me with like pastors where there's a, a pastor who I, I, something goes on and then I hear him preach and he preaches a great sermon um, but I have this flavor in my mouth I'm like ah that guy that guy uh, or things like that you know or even you even have with with your with your spouse sometimes you know you you've had an argument about something and then you come home later and they're not she's not she's not talking about that at all but but you, you're perceiving everything like I made dinner no oh, yeah sure you did of course you did like this is all in according to this personality thing that I'm connecting you to so there's a danger in in just connecting everything to personality, we can go too far with that. Um, I think I don't know. So that was what I was thinking. Yeah, about. yeah, and I think especially growing up in a kind of scientific age, so to speak, where we're taught to first and foremost look at arguments or to look at lines of reasoning uh, without making reference to who came up with it. Right, good ideas ought to be able to stand on their own. Uh, right in in logic, it's called an ad hominem. Right, yeah, the moment right. that you begin to to take in the author, 
of an idea in order to judge the idea. Yeah, and so especially with something like a biblical text, we're kind of in this interesting position where on the one hand, um, we want to know the history of a text and we want to know the author to know where they're coming from. Yet on the other hand, we understand that what we've got here is a uh, the divinely inspired word of God, and we want to be able to let it stand on its own and look at it on its own as well, and let it be a piece in and of itself. Um, and I think the 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 awesome the awesome role of getting to explore scripture is trying to find uh, the good medium between these two. Um, yeah. So our rule going history. forward. Yeah. Our rule going forward. No ad hominem attacks against John. We can't. We can't do exactly. that for this whole podcast. So here we go. <laughs> Now, there's lots of scholars out there uh, that say an awful lot of different things about who wrote the letter we call 1 John. Uh, did John or did John not write this letter? Kent, go. Yeah, and it's really interesting because if you look at the history of this argument, did John or did John not, like within the last several hundred years, there's a lot of controversy about that. But then there's a pretty long period of time where there's not so much controversy about that in the early Christian church. Um, but it has really, there's been a great deal of ink that ends up getting spilled um, over whether the, the apostle of Jesus, right, the guy who followed Jesus around, who was a son of Zebedee, who was a fisherman, who was called and, and left his nets and went and then followed Jesus through his ministry. Is this the guy who also wrote this, or is this some elder John? Is this some some Johannine you know school of people who followed him and then wrote some stuff in a voice that seemed like it was his voice, um, or is it the exact same guy that wrote uh, the epistle? Um, it's it's a pretty interesting question. Yeah, and and I think maybe the healthy thing to do is just kind of sit back and say, let's just you know lay out a few things here and then realize that. Um, you know, we're just going to have to make an assumption, but we think it's a safe assumption, right? About as safe as one as you can make. Um, the name John, uh, like in uh, some cultures today, super popular name. Uh, one out of three babies were probably named John uh, uh, in the time of John and Jesus. Um, so there's tons of Johns mentioned in the Bible, right? Um, there's tons of Johns in early church traditions. Um, Further, on top of that, what we've got in both John's Gospel and in these letters is that the author does not name himself. And so that's why there's a bit of an issue here. If this was like one of Paul's letters were right off the bat, he tells us, Paul wrote this, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand or things like that, then we probably wouldn't be having this discussion. But the fact that John's name doesn't show up, this just gives us plenty of opportunity, lots of scholars opportunity to spill tons of ink on this topic. But here's the facts, right? We're 99% sure, I would argue anyways, I'd like to know what you think, but 99% sure that John, the disciple of Jesus, wrote this as well as the gospel. Because on the one hand, we got an eyewitness. Um, in the gospel, the eyewitness has to be one of Jesus' inner three. Um, if it's going to be someone that records all of these main events as an eyewitness, uh, James and Peter are mentioned. And so the only one that's left out is uh, this guy that calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, that 
If it's going to be one of these inner three, it's going to be John. On top of that, early church fathers, they almost always say it's John the disciple. Um, he went on to become the bishop of Ephesus. And so there's really no strong reason to say it's not John the disciple or to like let this keep you up at night. That's what I would argue, right? Um, and even if it's not, we know it's an eyewitness and the writings can stand on their own as the writings of an eyewitness of of uh, of Jesus, right? And Jesus teaching. Yeah, and with those early church fathers, right? Like even a couple of guys who we know studied under John, who we know were converted right. by John, say this is yep. by John. Um, so exactly. those, are, those are really strong arguments that stand well. Plus then you have the like the linguistic connection, the way that the same kinds of words and phrases and ideas are between the gospel and, and this epistle. Amazingly strong. Like there's almost, it's better than Paul. Um, yeah. From book to book. Yeah. 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 I mean, you just read them and it sounds like the same poet, right? The same uh, mind, uh, the same artist created those two works. Yeah, if it wasn't um, John, it was someone who really wanted us to think that it was. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would suggest for simplicity's sake, we just, uh, we're good just saying John yeah. <laughs> as we're kind of moving forward. Huh? Well, the two of us are um, hardly enough to uh, undo that, you know, several hundred years of yeah. approach. So then the question is, how can John, if John's writing these things, how can John uniquely uh, connect with the lost, the outcast, the brokenhearted of our time? Um, why should someone, let's say someone who's been hurt by the religious community, give John a chance? Why should they even read uh, John's first epistle? Why should they be listening to us talk about it? What is it that John has to offer here um, as an author on this topic? Yeah. Um, and that, that's where I think some of his biography comes into play, right? So yeah, yeah. just a, a very basic rundown. We start out, we first meet him, and he's working for his dad fishing. And Jesus comes and says, hey, why don't you follow me? And they do. Uh, basically, immediately, John starts to follow Jesus. And then throughout Jesus's time actively ministering, John is a guy who is part of what you call his inner three, right? Peter, James, and John. These three guys get to go up on the mountain and see Jesus get transfigured in front of them. These three guys get to go in um, at, at the night that Jesus was betrayed and, and see him pray and be closer to him there. Um, and then John, of course, has, uh, well, not of course, he has this unique spot um, after Jesus is betrayed where he has some relationship with the high priest that lets him get into the, the, the courts and, and kind of see the trial um, as that goes on and Jesus gets yeah. condemned. John has the unique space at the cross where uh, Jesus looks at him and says, uh, hey, John, Mary, my mother, she's now your mother and you're now her son. Um, and then he, he, of course, is a, a witness of the resurrected Jesus. Even I love like if you're looking for something to read, folks, I love John's account of the resurrection because of how he, <laughs> he pushes Peter down over and over. Like, yeah. Peter ran, and I ran faster than he did, and I got there first, <laughs> and I was more excited. Like, it's a great little uh, approach to the resurrection and how excited a person can be about it. And then, you know, post-ascension, um, getting into to Pentecost and uh, and, and then the, the very young Christian church, John takes on a really unique role, which I'll hand over to you. Yeah, and, and maybe just, I mean, again, just to drill home this, this thing with John as one of Jesus' disciples, um, it's, it's very possible he was a disciple of John the Baptist too, right? Yeah. And so literally you have John at 
virtually every major event that's recorded in the ministry of Jesus. He is there, right, throughout the entire thing, uh, witnessing it. And so um, when it comes to the birth of the Christian church, right, what we call Pentecost, um, you have in John the gift of someone that was literally with Jesus every step of the way, even when none of the other disciples were. Uh, when it was just, as far as we know, John at the foot of the cross and all of the rest of them gone, um, John is there as the primary witness of everything. Yeah, and so Pentecost, right? He's there. He receives that special gift of the Holy Spirit along with the other disciples. Um, he was the youngest disciple as, as far as tradition has it. And so if you ever look at Christian art, how can you tell uh, in classical Christian art which one's John? It's like a little boy. <laughs> yeah, right? No beard. Everyone else has, has these big, you know, mountain men beards. And John is the only baby-faced one. Uh, the Last Supper, right? Da Vinci's Last Supper, the one sitting on Jesus' right. The one that looks like a woman that, uh, that, that Dan Brown took advantage of, right? Um, called Mary. That's just John. And that's the way that we picture him everywhere. But this young guy, right? Uh, possibly early 20s. And he is one of the leaders in Jerusalem uh, after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, he's with John, or he's uh, with Peter uh, uh, as those first miracles take place and uh, those and confronting the religious leaders. He's just right there in the mix of everything. As far as we know then after that, uh, we don't know anything more from Scripture per se. After John spending time in Jerusalem with Peter, there's another meeting that he's present at a little bit later. But uh, what what the rest of history tells us, um, the early church fathers, early history books from that time period, John was a bishop. He became a bishop originally of Ephesus. So, And when we say bishop, what we mean is just a church leader. That term doesn't carry any of the language that it does today. It's just someone that is... is uh, yeah, right? Um, and so there's a few major cities. One of them is Ephesus, and he is he is the apostle uh, that ends up living the longest. He's the only one that's not martyred, and uh, because of that, he literally gets to watch the growth of the Christian church and to be there in the middle of the growth of the Christian church and to uh, love uh, the first Christians and to and to share the love of Jesus in this radical way for decades after decade after decade, right in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. feels like a positive thing, right? That feels like, like what a cool thing you got to do. But it also came with its set of trials, right? He's the first guy. Yeah. Who's, he's going to watch all the other guys get martyred. He's going to yep. see the beginning of uh, heresies of different kinds, like teachings that try to undermine Jesus, make their way into the other churches. Yep. That's why he starts to write these kind of letters. Um, and he's even going to get to be the guy who writes Revelation and, and gives the ultimate encouragement to this young um, church that's about to step into a major era of persecution. Yeah, right. And so he watches everyone get killed. All the other apostles get killed. And they try to kill him too. Um, so there's that story. And we've got no idea how true this is, right? This could be completely fabricated as far but as we know. Good. But the tradition is, right? Yeah. The tradition is the way that he ended up getting on the island of Patmos. And we know that he was on the island of Patmos, that he got banished there. But the way that he got there, the story is uh, that... There's a persecution that takes place in Ephesus, and Christians are all thrown into the middle of the Colosseum, and they throw John then into this a uh, vat of boiling oil uh, in order to kill him. And of course, he comes out 
unscathed, right? Um, uh, he's not damaged at all from it, and the leaders are so angry at this, they banish him to the island of Patmos. Now, yeah, I mean, we got no idea if that's <laughs> if that's the case, but it's uh, it definitely probably as the kernel of truth that John faced tons of persecution. Um, Unlike some of the other Christian leaders who only uh, lived maybe up to or experienced a lot of the persecution coming from the Jewish people, um, he felt the full force of the first Roman persecutions take place. He's in the middle of it all um, and gets exiled and watches lots and lots of Christians die. And uh, this is the guy then that writes this letter on how Christians should love. Um, the church letter leader that's been watching the Christian church grow and get abused uh, for decade after decade. So, so then yeah. you get that story and you ask that question that you asked before. Right? Why, why should anybody yeah. care about what this guy has to say, especially somebody uh, who's been disenfranchised by or hurt by or, or negatively affected by Christianity and Christians and Christian culture? Um, and... Like there are maybe four or five, I think, uh, different cases that can be made for why he should be listened to. Uh, right? Yeah. Like you said before, yep. he saw all of it. Like we have pretty good historical evidence that this guy, eyewitness to all of it. Um, and that's significant. And, and that he never yeah. let that go, even though he lived this long life, something about it must have been transformative or impactful um, to him in a way that he thought could be transformative or impactful to other people as well. Um, which is yeah, and I think the other big thing, which is kind of cool, is uh, he probably, when he became a Christian, he's a young guy in his 20s, <laughs> and he's just trying to figure out who he is. And he finds Jesus, and Jesus gives him the direction and the meaning and the purpose in life that he's been looking for. A confused 20-year-old with a bunch of weird religious guys doing lots of weird religious things at his time, and he is looking for something completely different, and he finds it in Jesus. Um, and now he spends the rest of his life telling it to other young people, right? They compare that to like a, like a Matthew whose book is good, um, but very uh, yeah. corporate, right? We're going to talk about the, the Jewish nation meeting Christ. We're going to talk about this whole system meeting, meeting its savior in the book of Matthew. We're going to see a really like personal connection to Jesus uh, drip in all the pages of the book of John and in his letters and, and in everything that he uh, has contributed that we still have ministerially. There's, there's, not a, there's not a religion to him. There's a, there's a guy he knew, and that changed everything. Um, that this this connection that he had to this person named Jesus. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. so we should probably, <laughs> at some point, at least ask why did John write First John, or That's the letter that we're calling First John, which gets um, us into the fun the fun realm of proto gnosticism. Uh, yeah. Right? Which now yeah. everybody who's listening to the podcast is like, sweet, turn it up, because we're going to talk about proto gnosticism and gnosticism. But you, you did more reading than I did on this, right, about Serinthus and, and some of that stuff. So there's a little bit of history that can be given about what John might have been writing to do. Yeah. So so you write the you or you read the letter of first John, and there's a few things that we know for sure. 
there's this congregation that is struggling because a group of Christians that were from this congregation, they've separated because they've been teaching a lot of stuff that's very bizarre and very different than what, uh, than what Jesus taught. And because of that, uh, they're, they're not even going to be considered Christians anymore by John. They have just fallen away. And what we know for certain that they were teaching is that Jesus was not the Son of God, that Jesus did not become a real human being. And further, because of this, um, it's created this culture among this group of people that lacks the love of Jesus that John witnessed. And so John's going to stress more than anything else that Jesus is most certainly God and God's son. And we talked last time about how this was clearly the theme that's laid out in John's gospel and how first John chapter one mirrors that the first few verses, he's talking about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. Um, He's going to make as clear as possible that Jesus, although God, he most certainly became 100% a human being. And then finally, that this faith in Jesus, it's going to lead to life, this transformative life, which leads to being in loving fellowship with God and loving fellowship with one another. Um, Now, that's what we know for certain. And so historians try to look back 2,000 years and try to figure out exactly what could be the group that was teaching these things. And so the kind of main theory is that there is a group of what are called proto-Gnostics, so, um, what's a Gnostic, Kent? An Gnostic is a person that, that believes that there's this massive separation between the physical and the spiritual, and only the spiritual is good, and all of the physical is bad. Um, and they started to develop this idea that, that God is a totally spiritual being who has nothing at all to do uh, with the physical realm, because it's dirty and evil and rotten. And, and even they even went so far as to say that um, the world was created not by the true God, but by a sort of like demi-urge or, or demigod that was created out of him, because there's no way the true God would possibly reach down and make physical stuff, because it's so nasty and disgusting. And therefore, Jesus right, couldn't have been a physical person or a real human being. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and the way that they taught all this stuff then is that uh, you have to uh, discover this secret kind of knowledge about God and kind of work your way, kind of like a Masonic Lodge, right, where mm-hmm. there's levels of, of uh, knowledge and you want to work yourself higher and higher in the religion to higher and higher levels of, of enlightenment. It's a remarkably um, selfish approach to, uh, yeah. to God. Yeah. yeah, right. And it, and it's, it's an approach that makes it very difficult to get to God, which is going to be uh, one of John's huge bones to pick with this group is that Jesus is right there and accessible to everyone. And these Christians are making this hard as possible to get to Jesus. Yeah, right. And so those were Gnostics and they that school of thought was developed. Um, we're talking the mid 100s uh, to the mid 200s. So in that kind of time frame. A really early heresy, a really early one, right? Yeah, very early heresy. Um, And so like things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and all those uh, texts that were all written, they were all written about 100 years after the New Testament, but those are Gnostic texts. They use Christian language, but they don't teach anything Christian in any way, shape, or form, even though they use the name Jesus and, and the names of disciples and stuff. And so... 
what happens then is, is historians posit that there's this proto-Gnostic group that will eventually develop into full-fledged Gnosticism. So the group that John is dealing with right now doesn't necessarily believe all of that stuff yet, but there's the seeds that are going to sprout into that full-fledged Gnosticism. They've been planted at this time. And so there's this guy named Serinthus that was in Ephesus at that time um, who's considered the founder of proto-Gnosticism. And uh, early historians talk about John clearly having a rivalry with this guy. There's uh, uh, a funny incident that's recorded by Irenaeus where Serinthus, where, where uh, John comes running out of a bathhouse yelling, let us flee, let us flee, Serinthus is inside. Uh, uh, the building is going to fall down because of the enemy of truth is within there, right? And so it's clear that, that John had a serious problem with Serinthus, that he was creating uh, major divisions in the church in Ephesus at that time. And so it's possible, it's possible that 1 John, the letter we call 1 John, it's being written in order to uh, to battle this very early kind of form of proto-Gnosticism, maybe even something this Serinth, this guy was spreading around at that time. Yeah, and like That's you what said, we know, yeah. Uh, even, if, even if it's not that specific thing, right? There's, there's, it's clear that he is writing to combat an idea that Christ isn't yep. accessible. It's clear that he's writing to combat an idea um, that Christ isn't flesh and blood, right? He uses those kind of specific terms. Yeah. Um, yep. And it's clear that he's, he's writing to, um, to bring clarity to a group that seems to be trying to muddy waters. Um, you know, John's language is full of this, like, these extremes, light and dark and good and evil and like so all this clarity that almost seems polarizing in the way he talks about it but that's because there's this these people who are starting to roil around this idea of mystery and you gotta there's nuance to it all and it's a dangerous concept because they make God inaccessible by making him not even there absolutely uh, and so given then all this background info given who John is what he's writing to it's 2,000 years later uh, I'm not a person in this congregation that John is writing to. Why in the world should I listen to John today? Um, why should we want skeptics to listen to what John has today? Um, why should those that are hurt by religious people in the past, why should they be listening to what John has to say today? Why should they give Christianity or give Jesus a second chance by listening to John? Yeah, I'm excited to hear your answer to this. Um, when I was thinking about this question, I, I thought about a guy named Lucas Bitter who's starting a new church in, in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, um, which um, is, is a very exciting thing to get to do. Um, but he's really big on just giving people a, a chance or, or a challenge um, to, if they're skeptical, if they're, if they're questioning, if they're disenfranchised, like at least come and find out what the Bible actually has to say. Come and find out what, what it's actually about because there's a lot of misrepresentation out there. There's a lot of falsehood uh, out there and there's a lot of ways that it's been you know, sort of culturally co-opted and corrupted. Um, and so, you know, come, he has, offers a class and he says, here you can experience what it really is. And I think John's a really good example of that. Why should you read or listen to John? Like the guy is source material. The guy was 100% there, um, and he comes at this with a really personal affect. He desires to connect 
any individual to Jesus in the same way that he gets to be connected to Jesus. And that doesn't lead him to some kind of like flowery or superfluous approach. It leads him to some really clear and confident uh, promises that come from God that he hangs his hat on and he runs his life according to. And I think the more one gets to know John through his writings, the, the more one starts to uh, lo- fall in love with the personal nature of, of a connection to Christ and a connection to God. Uh, but uh, that's what I like. Why would you listen to yeah. for that reason? Yeah. What would you say? So, so I think if, if you've been hurt by religion in the past, if, if you feel like an outcast or you feel marginalized, John was there. He's, he's walked those steps. He was a follower of John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist was calling into question this group called the Pharisees. Of, of his day group that wanted everyone to know about the God of justice, wanted everyone to know about the God of wrath, and John wanted to find not just a God of justice, but a God of love, right? And First John is his poetic treatise on living as a follower of the ultimate God of love, as this person that was an outcast, someone that was marginalized, looking for an answer that mainstream culture he was not satisfied with, and he was looking for something different, and he found it in Jesus. Um, there's this interesting thing, right, that he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's not saying he's special, right, when he's saying this, that somehow he's more loved than anyone else. He's saying that he knew Jesus, and he knew how Jesus felt about him. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And so the whole point is that John has met God face to face, and the God that he has found is one that forgives over and over and over again. It is a God that loves unconditionally. It is a God that calls John his friend and that gives his life for him. And John wants to share this uh, God with us. And John believes you can't find him anywhere else in the world except in this person, Jesus. And so he writes uh, the gospel to show us that Jesus, and he writes First John to show us how to live now as followers of that Jesus. Yeah, these Powerful books. stuff. Right. Yeah. Which leads us to our big reveal today, um, because John never died. We have him here on the podcast with, no, I'm kidding, we don't. But it's, it, it, he, he holds such a unique place in especially the, the earliest of Christian history. Um, you know, we talk about why a, someone far from or disenfranchised by or hurt by the church should listen to him. And I, I think it's, it's all too true, like by comparison to the other authors in the New Testament. Um, but if, if, if a person already is connected to God, is a Christian, like this is a guy who is very much worth your time, worth getting to know. I mean, you, you read John and you get to have those chapters 15, 16, 17 of his gospel. You get to have chapters 1, chapter 5 of his epistles. You get to have uh, the comfort of the first chapters of Revelation. Like the, the Christian can find uh, an incredible amount of uh, camaraderie with a really amazing person um, who's a, a phenomenal uh, example of pointing to Christ in all things um, by getting to know the works of John. Um, yeah, that's yeah, it's it's fun to to get to. I'm I'm glad we picked this book first um, for our podcast journey together. Uh, he's going to be a fun guy to get to walk with. 
I don't have anything else. Do you? I don't either. This uh, is it's good. I think if we, we if we kept going, we'd talk more about Sorinthus, and people would have to turn it up even higher. So we can probably be yeah. good for the day. Thanks for listening to the Notable Podcast. Check out our other seasons to hear other people sharing their notes and highlights. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us or hear more, visit NotablePodcast.com. That's N-O-T-A-B-L-E podcast.com. Thanks for listening.